0: Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our Insights Series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more Insight Series updates and as always, like, subscribe and share.
1: Hello and welcome to Sibylline's podcast series for the latest edition Jonathan Dunbar here, Subline's EMEA director, and I'm joined today by Phil Riding, our lead Middle East and Africa analyst, as well as Eloise Scott, our Middle East and North Africa analyst. Thank you both for joining me today. So on this podcast, we'll be focusing on the Gulf. There clearly have been some interesting developments in recent months, not least the normalization of ties with Israel. We're looking at the UAE and Bahrain here, albeit with Saudi backing, and also a relative breakthrough between Qatar and the boycotting states in the region. In addition, there's the looming question of what the presidency of Joe Biden means for the region and the ever-present concerns on the trajectory of COVID-19. But let's back up slightly and look at the first point I highlighted.
2: Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. As you said, there have obviously been some quite significant changes in the Gulf in recent months. And and as you rightly highlighted, obviously, the normalisation agreements with Israel from the Gulf states of the UAE and Bahrain um, have been pertinent. Firstly, I'd just say that they're probably in terms of um, the relations and the way things are going. I think things are likely to continue on a positive trajectory, though I'd say that it's the UAE really that is taking the lead on this. Particularly, I'd highlight financial services. These are due to expand very quickly as obviously these economic ties grow largely between the UAE and Israel. Um, And this will be obviously in order to facilitate further investments. But I think there are a number of other areas where we're going to see deeper cooperation, particularly between Israel and the UAE. Um, And those include energy transportation. We've seen a couple of deals there designed essentially to transport Emirati oil to European markets, potentially in the next couple of years, as well as developing renewable projects. And I think also obviously the FinTech sector. Is a major concern um, for development for both countries. So I think that will be a major area for cooperation. And then, of course, obviously, shipping lines and logistics. So I think, particularly between the UAE and Israel, there are lots of opportunities for businesses across a wide variety of sectors. So, in, in relation to your question, Jonathan, with regards to whether we'll see any more normalization agreements between Israel and other Gulf states, I think, obviously, the, um, the inauguration of Joe Biden the other day that we saw, I think this year is going to be certainly slightly different to, to last year. Obviously, with Trump no longer in office, I don't think there'll be the same push for agreements that we saw, and particularly Biden won't be looking to leverage the same sorts of incentives that, that Trump did with, with states that have normalised relations with Israel. Potentially, Oman may consider normalising relations, but I think it's primarily keen to maintain its neutrality, particularly as, obviously, it's sort of balance the Gulf States with Iranian aggression and things like that. Qatar is another country that people have, have tentatively mentioned, but I think it will probably take one conflict um, or reconciliation at a time. Um, So I think Qatar will be much more focused on Saudi Arabia and the UAE and the reconciliation with the Gulf states. But I think finally that the major one that will be at the forefront of people's minds is obviously Saudi Arabia. And I think we could potentially see a normalisation agreement this year. I think there is some hope amongst, certainly amongst Israeli circles. But as I said, there won't be the same impetus from the US administration, which which might be key. In the meantime, Riyadh will definitely continue to be supportive of ties between its allies and Israel. And this could potentially pave the way for a slower process of normalisation in the coming year. And I think I'd I'd just say that obviously Mohammed bin Salman, he's, he's been much more pragmatic in recent months with regards to his foreign policy, particularly after reconciliation with Qatar i think he won't want to miss out on potential deals and benefits of israeli investment that obviously its its ally and and kind of rival the uae will obviously be be reaping the benefits of
3: i think if if i could just contribute a couple of things over Eloise's quite comprehensive summary there I just say on the the issue of the UAE and Israel while you know Eloise is definitely right that the groundwork's been laid for some pretty extensive cooperation there there's still scope for some of that to become quite a drawn-out process like for example uh, this week the visa-free travel agreement that was mooted between uh, Israel and the UAE has been delayed due to to COVID effectively Um, so there will be that this process will be relatively uneven. Um, I think Eloise is right to highlight financial services as somewhere where, or a sector where we will see faster progress, not least because some preliminary financial agreements were signed between the two states in the aftermath of the, the normalisation deal in the summer, so particularly towards September and October. There was. some there's a greater degree of formalization to allow Israel to access a degree of gold capital. So that's something that we will see um, over the course of the next couple of months. Um, but then I think one thing for for businesses to look out for is, is the success of the joint bid that um, the Dubai-based DP World has put in with an Israeli company to operate um, the port at Haifa, which is a kind of test case, I think, for Cooperations or cooperation between Israeli and UAE businesses. So um, yeah, if DP World and, and its Israeli partner are successful in, in that bid, then um, the, the path has been laid for, particularly in that particular sector, shipping and logistics, which um, Eloise mentioned earlier, that there's the potential for some, um, yeah, for, for us to see greater movement there over the course of the next year. So definitely some, um, some kind of potential opportunities opening up in, uh, in that field.
1: Great, thank you both on that. Um, so generally positive news overall, but well, let's focus more on, on, on one of the, the, the uh, countries you mentioned there, Qatar, and the, uh, you know, the recent kind of breakthrough between, between the state and the, the boycotting states within the region To What does this recent development mean uh, for the, the business environment? And how do you think it's going to unfold um, as we progress into 2021?
2: Thanks, Jonathan. I think, again, it was it's a really interesting case of Saudi pragmatism. Obviously, the boycott was in place for more than three years and really didn't achieve anything. So for Saudi Arabia to turn and sort of lead this reconciliation, I think, is, as you said, a major breakthrough. Obviously, it's resulted in land, air and sea borders being reopened. And the, the first sort of immediate effect is obviously families that were, uh, that were cut off due to the blockade have, have now been able to, to be reunited. I think in terms of businesses, the travel and hospitality sectors are likely to benefit fairly quickly from the um, sort of family reunions and and those things that I've just alluded to, um, particularly given that barriers to travel have now essentially been removed. I think another interesting point is obviously that airspace has been reopened, um, particularly Gulf airspace um, and Saudi Arabia. So Doha will no longer be forced to fly such convoluted routes to and from Doha. And in this sense, Iran is actually set to lose out financially quite substantially, Um, because it had obviously benefited from overflight payments, given that Doha wasn't able to cross over much of the Gulf. So that's potential cause for concern, obviously, for Iran that could lead to some tensions further down the line. Again, uh, this breakthrough is particularly notable for businesses in hospitality, aviation and travel, particularly ahead of Qatar's hosting of the 2022 FIFA World Cup. Provided that things are more back to normal with regards to travel and people being able to actually uh, travel to the Gulf the, for the tournament, I think uh, the sectors are, are likely to benefit quite substantially. One thing that I'd, I'd also highlight, potentially as a bit of a spoiler, is that obviously while this all looks quite rosy on the surface, there have obviously been notable developments with, with regards to trade and economic disputes appear to have been resolved. As I said, I think this is, is fairly superficial. Obviously, Qatar's relations with the likes of Turkey and Iran will remain a major concern, particularly for the UAE. And obviously Qatar is not really in a position to cut either of them off, given that Turkey and Qatar have cultivated very deep economic and military ties now. Uh, and also Qatar obviously shares a large gas field with Iran. So I think that's something that, that Qatar will, will definitely have to work with in, in balancing those relations, particularly as the UAE in particular is, is very anti uh, Doha's relations with Turkey and Iran. I think that
3: the point sort of tack on to that with regards to this being, you know, this being welcome news, but albeit subject to certain caveats, is that Qatar itself is, has undergone several kind of structural shifts as a result of the blockade that was implemented in 2017. And so businesses that have lost out as a result of that, that were previously, um, say, exporting to, to Qatar, shouldn't expect a, a quick return to the kind of status quo ante, you know, in, in particular fields and certainly like the food sector would be one of them. Qatar has really invested heavily in improving domestic production and developing greater resilience. So, um, as a result, it's it's unlikely to want to um, you know give up these hard earned benefits um, and sort of return to as I say things pre boycott uh, because obviously that then means that when these kind of disputes inevitably re- occur in future, it might again have to to invest in them. So. For logistics, I think this is clearly a you know a, a positive development for supply chains in the region. But for those states, sorry, those companies that lost business in twenty seventeen, depending on the sector, they shouldn't necessarily expect a, a quick recovery. So yeah, the, the picture will be mixed. I think as a as a result of yeah the end of the blockade.
1: Let's uh, let's pull up a bit and head back up to uh, thirty thousand feet and uh, pose the million dollar question to both of you: What is a uh, Biden presidency going to mean for for the Gulf and and the Middle East more widely?
2: Certainly, a few states in the region will be be quite concerned uh, and act very cautiously. Saudi Arabia in particular will be very cautious, given that obviously Biden isn't going to come in with the same kind of transactional approach to his foreign policy as did Donald Trump. I think Saudi Arabia obviously, in a way, got away with quite a lot, obviously, with the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi it went relatively unscathed given its human rights record. So I think Saudi Arabia in particular will be cautious. And I think what we've actually seen with particularly the reconciliation with Qatar was potentially an attempt by Riyadh to ingratiate itself with the incoming Biden administration. But what I would say, I think Biden is highly unlikely to reverse some of these commitments and deals that Donald Trump carried out and, and affected in the last couple of months especially with regards to the um, normalisation agreements with Israel, I think he'll continue to encourage closer cooperation and and develop those those ties. So I don't think we're likely to see any kind of major reversals in the region. But obviously the main million-dollar question within this is obviously the US-Iran nuclear deal and whether there is some kind of renegotiated new nuclear deal. Obviously Biden has suggested that he's keen to return to diplomacy, but it remains to be seen how sort of a hard ball Tehran will will play. Certainly this year, we'll probably see further bouts of hostility, particularly in in key shipping lanes around the Gulf. Uh, And obviously, Iraq has has been a major theatre for hostilities and tensions to play out. Iran will be particularly disappointed if moves aren't made fairly quickly. Um, Obviously, we've seen in recent weeks that it's taken a South Korean oil tanker hostage, essentially, as leverage, given that about £7 Um, seven billion dollars of funds are are trapped in South Korean banks. Iran's desperation to have sanctions lifted could lead to further hostilities and obviously on the other side you've got Saudi Arabia and Israel who will be very concerned uh, about whether the US and and Biden will take a more conciliatory approach and and end up with a softer nuclear deal which, which they certainly won't be particularly happy with.
3: Yeah I guess I'd highlight Israel as an interesting case because Clearly, it's uh, it's governing elite, particularly on the the centre and right, is opposed to any kind of major concessions to Iran, but nevertheless, fully understanding that Joe Biden almost certainly will make a new deal with with Tehran. It's just a question of how uh, Israel feels that it can shape that going forward. So clearly, in the the immediate term, Israel's focus is uh, the upcoming elections in March, which all kind of to some degree, interfere with the extent to which it can make its uh, views felt in Washington on the, the correct course of action in relation to, to you know, the shape of any new deal with Iran. But, you know, the, those elections will be almost uh, certainly won by um, a right of centre candidate, either, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu again, or Gideon Saiz, is, is rival from within Likud, or uh, Naftali Bennett, who now runs a party further to the right of Netanyahu, but Bennett himself was, was once um one of Netanyahu's closest supporters. So they're all cut from the same cloth when it comes to their antipathy towards uh, Iran. And it's really a question for for Israel as to whether the the most that they can hope for is to encourage Biden to reduce sanctions as slowly as possible. Or, for example, that any new uh, deal that's signed with Iran covers proxy activity as well as um, the development of of Iran's nuclear program. So um, there's plenty of ways that Israel can diplomatically obstruct that process uh, as well as doing more kind of inflammatory things like, for example, uh, assassinating uh, or not um, leading Iranian scientists like we saw at the, the back end of last year. So, um, yeah, it'll be a fraught uh, process uh, and one with uh, no doubt lots of hiccups along the way.
1: So essentially watch your space. Indeed. Excellent. Thank you for that. So finally, as we come to the end of this podcast, I guess my last question to the both of you is what's happening with the pandemic? What's happening with COVID-19? Where's that going? What's the trajectory? You know, we've seen it you know, accelerate structural and economic reforms in the Gulf in particular, but what do the kind of next six, 12 months look like? You know, As we hope, again, I covered that with hope that we start pulling out of this pandemic, what are they gonna look like? What's that timeframe going to mean for the Gulf and the countries within the region?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, um, as you alluded to, I'm going to take it from a slightly more positive standpoint. The longer term economic effects of COVID-19 are actually accelerating structural and economic reforms in many countries in the Gulf, uh, and particularly in countries that hadn't really started thinking about these kinds of reforms. So there definitely have been longer term changes that are now set in motion as a result of the pandemic and and its negative economic effects. In particular, there are some Gulf states that have really rapidly committed to reform programs and structural reforms as well. And I'd like to highlight Oman um, as a particularly notable country in this regard. The new Sultan has already removed some subsidies, the utilities from, from this month. And in the coming months, in April, he's due to introduce tax of 5% um, of VAT. There have been some reforms that he's implemented very quickly that could have triggered some domestic unrest. And... Actually, it hasn't. Obviously, there is the potential for some unrest when VAT is introduced, because that will be quite a shock, I think, for the Sultanate, where its population has become quite accustomed to to state handouts and things. But Oman, in terms of um, committing to structural and economic reforms, I think we're we're likely to see a lot more of these kind of developments, uh, particularly as it seeks to remove subsidies, not just for commercial um, investors and companies, but but also potentially for, for residents, although that is probably further down the line. In terms of other states that are undertaking reforms Saudi Arabia and the UAE obviously they're major financial and business hubs but I think we're starting to see some some quite big competition there particularly as both of them seek to retain foreign investments um, as well as the presence of multinational companies given that the pandemic has forced a lot of people a lot of expatriates to return home Um, in particular Saudi Arabia will try to compete more with the UAE as, as a major regional hub and it's it's launching some programs, such as tax incentives, amongst other things, to try to convince multinational companies to set up shop um, with their headquarters in in Saudi Arabia. And also, then obviously, the UAE has also undertaken further measures to try to to retain its its um, expatriate population and companies through things such as the lifting of restrictions on foreign ownership of companies. Um, they've also liberalised some of the laws with regards to sort of more social scenes. So I think. There is definitely some positives to be taken from from COVID-19. Sadly, on the other side of the spectrum, you've got countries like Kuwait and Bahrain that are in desperate need of um, some structural and economic reform. But I'm not holding out much hope this year, particularly Kuwait, which, as we've seen in the last few days, its cabinet resigned, essentially. So that's another government resignation. I think that's the 17th or something ridiculous since 2006. So severe political paralysis and problems there are going to continue to, to hamper reform efforts essentially so there are definitely some positives to be taken um in terms of reform efforts but sadly countries like Bahrain and Kuwait I, I don't hold out much hope for.
3: You know Eloise has summarized things pretty thoroughly there I all I would add is that Kuwait is an unusual country insofar as it's, uh, you know, in its current circumstances, it's undergoing a liquidity crisis rather than a financial crisis. It's still very wealthy, but it doesn't have the means of of paying its debts. So the kind of short term risk for, for the country is that those liquidity issues culminate in sort of se- severe contraction in government spending over the course of the next you know, six to 12 months, which will hit firms um, with existing contracts with the government or that are involved in tendering processes. So, you know, consultancies and service providers of one sort or another. Uh, and as Eloise alluded to, you know, the, the competition or the relationship between parliament and the government is such that it's difficult to see you know, how it's going to um, Overcome some of these issues, whether it be, you know, liquidating its considerable assets that are in sovereign wealth funds, whether it's raising government debt, which, again, it's still not passed the public debt law despite having debated one for the best part of a couple of years, or whether it's, you know, increasing VAT. Like there, there are solutions to Kuwait's problems, but they all involve compromise, and that's something that the Kuwaiti political system has, has really struggled to provide. So, for those businesses that are directly engaged with the, the Kuwaiti government, it could be, um, yeah, a rocky six months or so going forward. Great.
1: Thank you both. Thank you, Louise. Thank you, Phil, for that, you know, as as usual, a comprehensive and insightful roundup of developments within the region. Um, For all of you that are listening, thank you for joining us. And please do get in touch if you'd like to know more, if you have any other questions. Now I'm joined by Edward Johnson, our Insight team manager, who's going to provide a bit of a look forward to the, uh, the next week and uh, any events that we need to keep an eye on. Edward, what are we looking at? What's on the radar? What's on the horizon? Thanks Jonathan and uh, hello again everybody. Uh, yes. Uh, in a week ahead we've got a, a couple of,
0: of notable events in, in Vietnam for, for instance, we've got 13th Party Congress of the Communist Party, which will be, uh, they'll be electing a new general secretary. Um, you know, we've seen an increasing crackdown on, on dissidents over the over recent years and this is expected to be mirrored in, in preparations around the event itself, tight security across the country, notably in Hanoi, uh, where we might see an increased focus on internet censorship. And the crackdown on on dissidents protesting the event online and uh, in a physical space. Uh, Moving away from Asia-Pacific, we've also got the ongoing uh, talks between uh, the IMF and the government of Costa Rica as that country looks to um, secure a three-year, $1.75 billion loan facility. Now, whilst this is obviously a substantial amount of money, it, it, it really pales in in comparison to the, the $40 billion uh, owed by the companies, mostly to domestic banks, you know, which accounts for about 42% of the country's budget goes to servicing those loans. We're likely to see uh, the, the talks themselves serve as a trigger for, for protests around the, the, the imposition of austerity measures, and certainly one to watch moving forward.
1: Thank you, Edward. What about closer to home? Is there anything we need to watch in, in Europe or beyond there? Well, in in France, actually, on the the 23rd
0: uh, of January, we've got two different groups of activists rallying in Paris. Uh, One protesting a a new proposed security law, um, which uh, is is sort of viewed by that group as undermining civil liberties. And around that, we could see some fringe elements of the the, the Yellow Vest movement getting involved, Uh, while another uh, group will also protest in the capital, um, this time largely led by by unions uh, protesting the uh, job cuts triggered by the, the, the pandemic. And certainly, yeah, we would expect to see some low-level clashes between uh, activists and police at that event in Russia. So, uh, the opposition has called for, for also called for protests on the twenty-third of January uh, in support of uh, opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who returned home from Germany after his uh, apparent Novichok poisoning on the seventeenth of January. You know, th- this is the the first action the opposition has called in Russia this year. It's un- unclear at the moment as to how. How well attended the events will be in, in Moscow, St. Petersburg, and elsewhere, but it's uh, the, the sort of marks the first opposition action in a year that we'll see, undoubtedly quite a, quite a fair bit as uh, the country uh, will host uh, will, will hold uh, parliamentary elections uh, by September, which uh, Navalny and his team will, will look to um, advance their uh, campaign against the the, the ruling
1: uh, ruling party, United Russia. Thank you, Edward, for that outline. And to all of you listening, thank you again for joining us. As ever, if you'd like to know more, if you have any questions, please do get in touch.